the All About Setwork podcast. In this podcast, we talk about all things setwork. That can include training tips, a behind-the-scenes look at what your instructor or trial official may be going through, and much more. In this episode, I wanted to talk about the importance of breaking things down. <laughs> so before we start diving into the podcast episode itself, let me do a very quick introduction of myself. My name is Diana Santos. I'm the owner and lead instructor for Setwork University, Dog Sport University, and Pet Dog U. These are online dog training platforms that are designed to provide high quality dog training instruction and we are very fortunate to have a client basis worldwide. For Setwork University in particular, we provide online courses, seminars, webinars, and ebooks that are all designed to help you achieve your Setwork training goals. So whether you're just getting started in Setwork, you're looking to develop some more advanced skills, or if you're interested in trialing, we have a training solution for you. So let you know a little bit more about me, let's dive into the podcast episode itself. So in this episode, I want to talk about the concept of breaking things down. <laughs> and for anyone who is familiar with just dog training in general, this is not an alien concept that it can be very helpful for our dogs if we don't try to do too many things at once, where basically we need to separate all the different elements of what it is we may want them to do so that it's easier for them to understand. And that's because they're dogs and we're people. We're two different species trying to understand one another. <laughs> and when you and I may be able to verbalize to each other and maybe even mime or draw a picture or whatever else to really make it clear, this is what I mean. That's not as easy to do with a dog. And the dogs are always guessing what it is that we want them to do. And that all is dependent on what we're rewarding them for, right? If you are asking them to do something, and they do a thing, and we reward them for the thing, the dog thinks like, oh, you wanted me to do the thing. But we may have actually been rewarding a different, like one tiny part of that thing. <laughs> and the dog may be doing like 15 different things at once, and they just assume they have to do those 15 different things. So to try to help this make a little bit more sense, for my very first boy that I had when I was becoming a fledgling little dog trainer, his name was Zeus, and he was brilliant. He was just a clicker savant dog. He made me look much better than I was as far as training was concerned. But he was extraordinarily literal in that if he was doing seven different things with his body, the moment you clicked, he registered in his head, okay, I'm taking a, a mental picture of everything I'm doing. And those are all the things that she wants me to do because she clicked for operant training, for market training, when I did those seven things. Which is great when you're trying to, you know, have him do very specific things. But it also can lead to superstitious behavior where he would think that he'd have to you know, hold up his paw and tilt his head and do like weird things when really none of that was part of it. We had to do a lot of parsing out in order to have it be like, yeah, no, that I really just wanted this thing. I wasn't clear on my end. I wasn't breaking things down enough. What does any of this have to do with sound work? Well, all of those principles still apply when we are doing setwork training with our dogs. And it also applies when we're doing setwork training with us. <laughs> so this is really a podcast trying to remind everyone that this can be more complicated than it seems. And it can be more complicated on both ends of the leash. And also to implore my fellow instructors to remember these things as well that we may just have so many baseline assumptions or things that are just second nature to us that we just kind of skip over some stuff. I'm like, okay, oh, hey, now we're going to go move on to whatever it is that we're doing for whatever exercise. 
but we really need to critically look, do I need to break this down into smaller pieces? And as instructors, that can be challenging because you're running up against clients who, for all very good reasons, you know, they, they want to get going, right? They want to, it's not the whole, oh my goodness, people just want to rush, oh, people just want to get titles. It has nothing to do with it. They want to feel like they're progressing, right? They want to feel like they're learning something. And the art of being an instructor is guiding them step by step and having those steps be appropriate without them feeling as though I'm going at a snail's pace. When do we actually do something? (laughs) That's the hard part about being an instructor. And it's not easy by any stretch. And you may have to adjust the size of those steps dependent on the team that's in front of you. So this is hard for everybody. This is hard for people who just are working with their dogs. How do I break this down so my dog can understand? Then it's difficult for just you. How do I break things down that I'm learning as a handler? Because we're all still learning. I'm still learning. Everyone should still be learning. (laughs) How do you still break that down so that you're not skipping over things, so that you're not going too fast, so that you don't develop holes in what your skills are? whether it be leash handling, reading your dog, moving in a space, how you handle your body, how you handle mental management, all these different types of things really do matter. But then also it's difficult for the instructor (laughs) to try to meet the needs of the dog and the handler as well as themselves, right? Because we are humans and we may assume as instructors, okay, well, I need to get this class going or I need to get this team going. I need to get this dog going, you know, whatever. It's like, well, why don't we really make sure that things are good instead of rushing ahead? So what are some of the ways that we can actually achieve this, Miss Santos Lady? Well, well, we'll work from the dog first and we'll work our way up. So breaking things down for the dog, a couple of questions you want to ask yourself is when you are viewing the dog, doing whatever level of training that you're at, you could be at the very beginning of your journey, you could have been doing this forever. <laughs> it doesn't matter. But the dog in front of you, when you set out a search for them, right? And ideally, this is a known hide. For my purposes, it's paired or it's food or something. The dog can just go and do their thing and you can just kind of watch. What do they present like, right? So what do they look like? Do they look as though, A, they know what they're doing? (laughs) Do they have any concept of what the game is? What do you think they think the concept of the game is? And how does that line up with what you want the game to be? So basically, if you were to set a hide in a space, again, it doesn't have to be anything super complicated. It's a known hide to you. You can just let the dog go and you can stay at the start line. Do they head into the space and immediately start working? And do they identify odor? Do they then work through that odor plume? Do they get to source? And then what do they do? That all sounds like, of course, like that's the whole point of scent work. But truly, if you just stop for a second every now and again (laughs) to do these assessments, to really try to see, does my dog understand what the game is? Or do they think it's something else? Do they think like my Zeus thought that there's 15 other outside, completely not necessary things that they have to do because they're rewarded for that at some point? So as an example, let's say that you let your dog go search and they took a couple steps and then they kind of stopped and they looked back at you and said, um, aren't I supposed to stay with you? (laughs) Why are you staying there? That would be information for us. Be like, okay, we haven't done enough distance work, right? We haven't done enough things for my dog to feel comfortable 
to know that they can go get their hide on their own. Good information to have. You can then maybe take a step or two and see if that helps prompt them to continue searching. But maybe as they're searching, they're going along and you start noticing that they're hitting upon all these places that you typically place hides. So maybe like chairs or tables or other pieces of furniture if you're working inside of your house. You know, items and things. And they're just kind of nose poking it, looking at you, nose poking it, looking at you, nose poking it, looking at you. And they look really excited, but they don't look like they're hunting at all, right? They just kind of look like they're poking their nose and looking back at you. <laughs> cookie now, cookie now, cookie now, cookie now, that kind of thing. Well, again, really good information to have. All right, so our dog thinks that they're just supposed to poke their nose on things, not actually maybe make the association that it's about odor. It could also be that maybe there is some odor contamination in the space. There's all kinds of things you can kind of try to figure out from that. Maybe when the dog is working the space, they aren't doing any of those things, right? They're like, yeah, you're at the start line, who cares? They are working odor, whatnot. But then they figure out sort of where the hide is and they stand like five feet away from it. And they look at you and they're like, cookie! They're nowhere near the hide at all. They're in the general area, right? They're looking at it, but they are very far away. And again, this is accessible. This isn't some high elevated hide. This isn't an inaccessible hide. It's right there. They can just stick their nose onto it. But they're five feet away. As confident as can be. Yep, it's over there. Give me my cookie. <laughs> that is a problem, right? They're like, okay, well, now we need to work on, we need to get them to source. We need to understand we want them at source. So these really super simple types of setups. One hide, it's known, it's accessible. And you can just let your dog search. Ideally, you're filming this. You can then identify where are their misunderstandings? Where are their holes? And how can I break that down so that my dog can better understand? And again, it puts the onus a little bit more back on us, which I think is more appropriate, to design our training sessions so our dogs can actually understand. Instead of just banging our head against the wall over and over again, getting really frustrated, if we take the time to actually try to figure out what is happening and what our dog's perceptions are, and then how we're actually reinforcing that, albeit potentially inadvertently, then we can try to, again, break it down to smaller pieces so it's clearer to the dog. So that's the dog piece. That, that's one of the ways we can definitely do that. You also want to do a search where you know your dog is going to be able to get the hide. That's not the problem. But now you're going to be focusing on you. And again, you're going to be filming, ideally. Either you have someone holding the camera for you, the phone, the iPad, whatever. Or you have it on a tripod. Whatever works best for you. But your whole purpose with this is that you're going to run this search the way you normally do. And you want to review your video after. Ideally, you're doing this either in an interior space or a safe enclosed exterior space because you're going to run this twice. One run you're going to do off-leash, and you're like, yay! <laughs> and the second run you're going to do on-leash, you're like, boo! But you want to do both because you want to see if there are any differences. And when you're viewing these videos, you want to see what am I doing as a handler? How do I look? How am I oriented to my dog? How far away am I from my dog? How close am I to my dog? Am I reacting to what my dog does? Is my body matching what my dog does? If my dog slows down, am I running up on their butt? If my dog speeds up, am I holding them back? If I am doing things on leash, am I fiddling with my long line and just look completely discombobulated, like I oftentimes do? 
Or if I'm doing things off leash, am I just staying stationary? I'm not changing anything at all. I'm just like standing there like a statue. These are all the kinds of things that, again, we want to evaluate as handlers to try to see how it is that we can better improve ourselves and, again, how we can break things down. So how can you break down some of these things as handlers? A lot of it you can do completely away from your dog. And this is something that I don't think that we do enough in just dog training. I don't think that we do it enough, particularly in scent work. We have to recognize that as people, you and I as handlers have to develop skills. And a lot of them are mechanical skills. And I'm particularly sensitive to this because I am very uncoordinated. (laughs) I don't think the synapses that connect my brain to the rest of my body work very well. So it takes me a lot of repetitions and a lot of effort to actually have smooth motions, to actually be like, oh, that's how I do this or whatever. It takes a lot of time and effort. It's really annoying. But I know that those deficiencies on my end are making my dog's life harder because they have to kind of pick up the slack or it could be just interrupting the flow. So to give you an example, let's say that you are doing a search. One of these things I'm suggesting off leash but you have multiple hides, right? You decide that I'm going to do multiple hides for this search, which again, it's totally fine. Your dog comes up, they find their hide, and you have now positioned yourself where you're almost blocking the dog's path of where they could potentially go going forward because you're trying to reward them. And the reason you've positioned yourself like that is that you want to be able to grab your treats with a certain hand, either your left or your right hand, And you want that to be closest to the dog because of the history that you have, that one is reversed and it's your non-primary hand or dominant hand. You drop treats all over the place. (laughs) So you positioned yourself, you swung yourself around so that you're using your dominant hand and you're trying your darndest to get the treats actually into the dog's mouth without it falling on the floor and all this other stuff. And they're getting stuck to your hand and you don't really know how to do it. And you're trying to do the jackpot thing the Santos lady is always talking about. You're like, I hate this so much. So on and so forth. (laughs) So you're all frazzled. And now the dog has to work around you in order to get and continue the path they were just on. And again, is it necessarily a bad thing? It probably is not a bad idea to do purposefully in training now and again to see that the dog will actually stick with the problem. But it's not helping the dog, right? It's not helping them be efficient. You want to, again, be supportive of them, so you wouldn't want to be blocking their path. But there are lots of dogs who'd be like, oh, you're claiming that space? Okay, I'll go back over this way, (laughs) which you don't want, right? If they were headed in one direction because they're like, oh, there's odor over there. And then we step in front of it and go, don't you dare go over there. I mean, that's very confusing to the dog. So in that kind of situation, you would want to figure out where are the difficulties, right? Why is all of this kerfuffle happening? And it's really because of a mechanical skill. I have a hard time in this scenario, I meaning the the large eye, (laughs) the descriptive eye, of using my non-dominant hand to feed my dog that may be closest to my dog. So I'm swinging my whole body around to try to make sure I can feed with just my dominant hand because I'm so worried about dropping treats because I don't want faults at trial, which again, makes perfect sense. So there's a couple of things you would want to do in order to break this down completely on your own without your dog. Your dog is like inside, you know, another room chewing on a bone or something. <laughs> You're not doing any training with them at all. Maybe like the kids are outside playing with them in the backyard, whatever. It doesn't matter. You are somewhere away from your dog and you are just going to be practicing on your own, 
grabbing treats and then feeding them, quote unquote, to a quote unquote dog that really is like a cup, like a little plastic cup or something that you have like on a desk or a table or something. And you're just going to be walking around the space and you're just going to find different intervals when you're going to move and you're going to feed this little cup. One of the things that I like to tell clients is if you can have playing a newscast, every time they cut the camera angle, <laughs> because they do that a lot to try to keep it exciting, that's your cue to go in and to feed, quote unquote, your cup, to get the treats into the cup. And you want to be sneaky about this, right? You want to, or at least be honest about it to yourself as far as making it challenging. So if you can walk around your space, get a really good distance from your cup. So when they cut that camera, they kind of kind of like rush up in order to, to reward the cup <laughs> or to get the treats in there. And once that's done for that segment, how many treats made it into the cup? You know, maybe all the treats made it in there, but then you also said like, yeah, but I only really put two treats in the cup because <laughs> I was worried that I was going to drop some treats. Like the whole point of this is there are ways that you and I as handlers can improve our skills. A lot of this is mechanical skills, but it's also a combination of things. We're asking you as handlers to observe your dogs. We have observation skills, analyze what it is that you're seeing. So thinking and analytics and also be able to physically react mechanical skills. All three of those things at the very same time. <laughs> On top of a layer of, I don't want to do this wrong. I don't want to make my dog's life harder. I don't, oh my goodness, even in training, I, I could potentially call a false alert. <gasps> like, goodness gracious. <laughs> so while I think it's important for us to think through how we could potentially be inadvertently throwing too many things at once at our dogs, I think that is absolutely, it's a common thing that happens that we need to try to shy away from instead and see how we can break things down. I think that's even more important when we're talking about us as handlers. And it can be challenging when you're trying to do this on your own. It's absolutely possible, but it can be challenging. But particularly if you're working with friends or if you're working with an instructor, figure out a way that you can really isolate what the skills are that you need to work on so that you can be the handler that you need to be. And this is my plea to my fellow colleagues, is find time in every single one of your classes, every single one. The dogs have done their searches, they're resting. <laughs> now it's time to teach the people and give the people ways to really hone some of these skills. There's so many skills that handlers need that we just hope, hope and pray that they figure out by osmosis or just by a prayer. And that's just not fair. I mean, it's what it does. It creates a dynamic where all the onus, all of the pressure, all of the responsibility really is placed on the dog, which isn't fair. And then the handler is the one left holding the bag because they're the ones that don't have the skills that they need. And then they get angry at their dog because we called a false alert. We didn't do anything. You called a false alert. <laughs> You called a false alert because you may have seen something and you were worried, so you called alert, but you didn't have the skills to, in order to figure out, was that really an alert behavior or was my dog queuing off of me? Was my dog doing X, Y, or Z or another thing? Again, for my fellow colleagues, try to identify ways, particularly in your group classes, especially in your private sessions, where you can help your handlers be better handlers. And a lot of that has nothing to do with the dog. As far as dogs can be taking a nap in their crate <laughs> and people can be learning things, leash handling skills, mechanics as far as rewarding, 
knowing when to reward, how to reward, how to use toys, how to do appropriate play, how to do proper rewarding, how to deal with mental management, how to deal with pressure, how to be able to move within a space without interrupting the dog, how to know what you're doing with your body, the orientation of your body, understanding just the way that spaces are designed for scent work, where hides could potentially be, how you can move around the space, what's the odor going to be doing. That's just scratching the surface. That's not everything, (laughs) but that's a lot. Like if you're talking about a six-week class, that is more than six weeks worth of stuff. (laughs) So I hope that this just, again, gets people thinking about the importance of breaking things down And that it's something in scent work that we're just really not that good at, right? We're right from the jump. We're doing an awful lot of lumping oftentimes. And we're just throwing everything in the kitchen sink at our dogs, at our handlers, at the team, and just hoping for the best. And I don't think that's the best way of going about it. So something to think about. (laughs) But as always, I want to hear from you guys. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think that we need to do a little bit more breaking down? As far as set work is concerned, do you think that you do enough breaking down on both ends of the leash for yourself and your dog? If you're an instructor, do you actually participate or do you do any of these handler-specific only exercises? And then do you think that you actually offer those opportunities for the dog to really break things down to make sure that they really do understand the whole premise of the game and what they're expected to do? I'd love to hear from you. We are going to be continuing our spotlight series where we talk to individuals and businesses that are giving back to the separate community. And we like to highlight these individuals and let everyone know about them. If you have someone that you have in mind, please let me know. I would love to speak with them. We're also continuing with our brand new series where we talk to participants of Cyber Network. I am loving this series very much. (laughs) So we are continuing with that. And we're also going to be putting together some additional roundtables with our instructors and outside speakers. We're getting all of those all finalized. Really excited about that too, because I want you all to listen to other people than just me. (laughs) We have access to really wonderful and talented professionals, so you may as well hear from them. But as always, I want to thank you all for giving this podcast a listen. I hope you find it helpful. Happy training, and we look forward to seeing you soon.